Welcome to A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. In the third episode in our forum series, Back to Basics, Dr. Dryden Little joins me for a deep dive into the unanswered questions of the Book of Job. We look together at the ways we interpret Scripture, and we grapple with one of the essential questions of the human condition. Why do we suffer? Okay, it's great to welcome you all here, especially to our guests and visitors today. Um, and a warm welcome again to Dryden Little, who's going to be um, helping you. us uh, today look very deeply at the book of Job. Um, but before we begin, I wanted to ask all of you just to um, share some of the questions you bring to this session, and we'll chart them over here. We won't answer them right away, but we'll get to them um, before the end, I'm sure. And um, as you were doing the reading that I sent out earlier in the week, if you did that, or if you have read Job in the past, or just know a little bit about Job and have questions about the book, now is the time to ask. So let me pull out a marker and we will get started. Who wants to ask first? David. I wondered when it was first um, written down. I, I assume it was an oral tradition. And in follow-up to that, is that last section um, considered by a different author, or is it the same source? And following up on that, what language was it originally written in? I'm, <clears throat> I'm just really puzzled by the relationship between God and Satan. I had trouble understanding um, Elihu. God's greater purposes. Running out of room over that. Very basic question. Who was Job and when did he live? Sort of a general question. When did God start, stop talking to us more overtly? More to the point, why? Good. Well, this gives us lots to chew on. And uh, some of these things I think Dryden's going to pick up yeah. in his presentation in just a few minutes. But before we go to that, I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about how we understand Scripture in our tradition. Um, both broadly speaking as Christians and more specifically as Anglicans. Um, one of the classic debates, um, jumping ahead from where we left off last week, we're jumping over the whole medieval period, which is probably not the uh, clearest thing to do. We're going to jump over the medieval period and we're going to jump into the Reformation era. Um, beginning in the 16th century, one of the debates that is foundational to understanding what's going on in the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, 
which was the Catholic response to Luther and the, the later reformers in the 16th century, is what are the sources of authority for Christians? Okay? What are the sources of authority? When we have an ethical question, when we have a question of interpretation of our sacred writings, when we have a question about what liturgical practice we're going to pick up and adopt it, where do we go to answer that question? And the reformers, beginning in the 16th century, began to formulate various answers to this question. Our classical tradition, classical Anglicanism, which we can trace back to uh, what we call the Anglican divines, in particular, uh, particularly the um, divine named Richard Hooker, who was a theologian writing in Queen Elizabeth's time, uh, later in the 16th century, is that we have what we call three sources of authority in our tradition. The first one should be fairly obvious to most of us because we're steeped in really the consequences of the Reformation period, but that's scripture. That is the canon of the Bible as it was established um, around the third and fourth centuries and then carried forward by the church. And another source of our authority that Richard Hooker really focused on was what he called reason. That's using our noggin, to put it sort of in the vernacular. But Richard Hooker was also digging deep into the tradition of the scholastics, who were theologians who emerged in the 13th century and, and really went back and plumbed the depths of Greek philosophy to build a systematic theology. Um, and they relied heavily on Aristotle. And um, Aristotelian thought and the scholastics came together to form a notion of what became called natural law. All right, and there's a lot to say about natural law, um, and there are weaknesses to it and strengths to it, but the baseline for us, for our purposes today, is that, is that God is revealed through the laws of nature. There is a sense in which we can reach an understanding of God through faculties of reason, and that we bring this, Richard Hooker wrote, into conversation with the scriptural tradition. And in fact, we really can't approach scripture without this. You know? We, we, gotta, we gotta put our thinking caps on before we get into scripture. Okay? And then finally, the third piece, tradition. Which is going back and saying, what, what have previous faithful folks said about this particular issue or about this particular scriptural passage. So we rely on authorities outside of ourselves who are anchored and reliable in the tradition, going back to the early days of Christianity and its establishment as, as a faith. All right, now some of our uh, brothers and sisters in the Protestant tradition add an extra piece, experience, which kind of hooks into the old wisdom tradition, which is the notion that how, how do we learn? 
by doing, right? You know, what's the best teacher? Experience. Uh, Richard Hooker probably would have lumped experience in with reason. These two would have been synonymous. But if you speak with our Methodist sisters and brothers today, they'll talk about these four areas of authority in the tradition. If you talk more to our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers, they're going to lean more heavily in this area um, because the authority of the church is very important. And the authority of the church speaks through the tradition. Okay? If you lean more heavily into um, what we would call more fundamentalist or more evangelical branches of Protestantism, you're going to see a very heavy emphasis on Scripture. And, in fact, one of the, one of the great debates that was ongoing out of the Protestant Reformation is, do we rely on Scripture alone, or do we bring these other elements into it? And so, um, anyway, that gives you kind of a roadmap to how we understand things, and as we go into dialogue after Dryden's presentation, we'll talk about how we're bringing up each of these resources of authority into the conversation. Any questions about that before we get going? It's more an observation. I don't see science in any of those quadrants. Um, so science, I think it can be argued, is an outgrowth of natural law. And in fact, Aristotelian categories um, really lie at the bedrock of modern scientific theory. The whole idea of categorizing the natural world and uh, genera and species and all of that really comes out of the Aristotelian view of the world. So it's hard for us to remember, or put another way, it's easy for us to forget that in fact at one time what we would regard as the natural sciences were taught alongside theology. And um, to bring it a little bit more up uh, to, to currency in the 20th century, did you know that most physicists were taught philosophy as a basis for their inquiry? And that comes out of this tradition and the scholastics back into the medieval period and the founding of universities where theology and the natural sciences, including what later evolved to become biology and physics and geology and all of the other things, um, come from this root. Richard, of course, metaphysics was the combination right. of physics and metaphysics. Metaphysics. Philosophy of Right. So world. that would fall in this quadrant. And if you see us in the contemporary Episcopal Church trying to address ethical issues, um, and we're going to science as a, as a resource of authority, it falls squarely in this quadrant right here. Yep. Any other questions about this? Ludmilla. Brother Richard, and the Holy Spirit, where do you, where do you fi find? Everywhere? In each? Uh... Thank you. Yeah. 
That's a great question. The question is, where do we find the Holy Spirit in this? We find it in all four. Okay? Um, certainly our experience, we experience the Spirit as present with us. Um, we would argue theologically that our capacity to reason is inspired and gifted to us by the Spirit. Scripture, we say, very much at the root of our tradition, was inspired by the Spirit. The authors of Scripture were led by the Holy Spirit to write what they did. And the tradition, or the church, is inspired and animated by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Dryden, yeah, over to you. Right. So now we're going to turn back to Job. Poor old Job didn't know anything about metaphysics and natural law and reason, anything like that. Perhaps if he did, he wouldn't have had such agony. But um, it seems when you read uh, Job in the Old Testament, he's accepted, he has an acceptance of what he thinks of his divinely ordained lot. And this seems to be almost a, virtu a virtuous concept in the Old Testament, but it's after all a story of human suffering. But for us, I think it reveals a divine darkness. Poet John Milton in Paradise Lost began the poem at the beginning of our suffering. In book one, he wrote, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of the forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death and sin into the world and all our woe and suffering with the loss of Eden, to one greater man restore and regain the blissful seat. For Milton, history was two great events, the fall and the resurrection. Here we are. This is William Blake, 100 years later than Milton. But you perceive here tragedy of the fall, Satan is wrapped around Eve, and Satan is feeding Eve with the fruit, the forbidden fruit. And Adam has his back turned. He's separated from Eve in the full act of disobedience. They are separated. He cannot believe what she's done, but she's in the power of the snake. And there's a, another Michelangelo one that we have below that on the Sistine Chapel. Um, there again is Satan, even a little head popping out. It's a fuller story of Michelangelo a bit earlier, but I think the William Blake one, go back to William Blake, I think it's a, a more revealing story. Now, Job's faith and virtue is continually being tested by Yahweh. I'll call God Yahweh at the moment because that's the Old Testament reference in Genesis. But he's tested and tested to extremes. Yahweh refuses to answer Job when he pleads for a hearing. Job is seeking wisdom, but perhaps this challenged and angered Yahweh. As had Adam and Eve when eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge, they were challenging Yahweh. Maybe he considers 
Job is just another pesky Adam. We see throughout this God's divine savagery. We are left with the mystery of a Yahweh of supposed justice who makes the good man suffer. Job is a model of virtue, which Satan determines to destroy. This is the element of Satan. Milton and Blake took up the satanic element here. So, Job is really the model of virtue. Satan wants to destroy this, so he has Yahweh's ear. He's very close to Yahweh. And he seems to persuade Yahweh to continue with Job's agony. But why, why does Yahweh listen to Satan? Job's friends are convinced that Job's suffering is deserved. A guilty conscience prompts your words, they say. Sin and suffering, after all, are connected. Job must have sinned, if only by omission, according to his so-called friends. Job expected help from God against God. That is what Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, called God's complex of opposites. But this is a God who knows no moderation. He exhibits rage and jealousy. Jung characterizes this as a God unconscious of his actions. Whereas Job was exhibiting a consciousness and an intellectual awareness of just and unjust actions. Job thought of God as the just God, the just judge, before whom he could protest his innocence. But, he says, who could summon God? He multiplies my wounds without cause. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. I know thou wilt not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. I desire to argue my case with God. Just like the early prophets who had a face-to-face relationship with God. In fact, one question Bill had was this, the, this was, in fact, the last encounter directly between man and God. So, God has taken away my right and my dignity. Job wants to meet God on the basis of justice. Although he sees the evil in Yahweh, he is equally certain of the good. Job has not yet understood that he must bow to the Creator's wisdom. He is devastated by God's reply in chapters 38 to 39. It's a knockout blow. It's all about God, what he's done. It's great creation. So Job retracts, all I have said, and in dust and ashes I repent. But is God's response convincing? as just a justification for his behavior with Job. The bigger question is why and to what purpose Job was so ill-treated and what are the consequences for our belief? The wrong done to Job was a wrong done to mankind. Carl Jung wrote a paper, The Answer to Job. I'll give you a sense of it. 
He speculates that it was Yahweh's intention to become man because of his shame in his treatment of Job. This is then fulfilled in Christ's life and suffering. Jung thinks that Christ's sacrificial death was a fate chosen by Yahweh as a reparation for the wrong done to Job. Job had stood morality higher, had stood morally higher than Yahweh. And God became man because he had done man a wrong. On the cross, God experiences what it means to be a mortal man and what he made his faithful servant Job suffer. This, Jung believes, is the answer to Job. God changes his nature. Mankind is not, as before, to be destroyed, but saved. And Christ exhibits his love of mankind. Justice will henceforth be given priority over the other virtues. But wait a moment, we have... The image of Yahweh and Job is incompatible with our belief in the goodness of a loving God. But here we go again, the New Testament, with the suffering of mankind in the book of Revelations. John the Divine shows the destruction of all beauty and unspeakable suffering. Apocalypse visions appear that cataclysms of destruction. We are back to a paradoxical idea of God. God is not only to be loved, but also to be feared. So why is there a need for a gospel of fear as well as a gospel of love? Well, is this, what Jung said, a tension of opposites or a necessary condition of our existence? Perhaps it is mankind we should fear. And John's terrible visions in the apocalypse will be realized by our actions. Yahweh had in the Old Testament laid down fundamental laws or covenants for humans through his chosen prophets, his men of faith. These were moral rules, God's laws. Job believed he was being moral by following these laws. 18th century rationalists, back to the age of reason, like Immanuel Kant, saw personal will as their law to act morally. Certain behaviors were categorically imperative. One, one would save a drowning man. One wouldn't make false promises or lie. Yet, Kant still thought of God as the moral law. He wrote, the starry heavens above me, the moral law within me. We know the force of morality even if we don't do the right thing. Truths are anchored deep in the soul. Kant thought that we did not perform moral acts because of God's will. We don't act just to win God's approval. We take responsibility ourselves. That is, we act to save someone from drowning 
because it's the right thing to do in terms of our own rational conscience. Philosophers of the Enlightenment thought that the highest good was virtue rewarded, perhaps in another life. Kant's maxim was never to treat humans as merely a means. Humanity was an end in itself. Being a rational being makes you an end in itself, to be respected absolutely. Now, this is an eminently Christian belief, but hardly Yahweh's treatment of Job, as he rode roughshod over Job's human dignity. Job thought that he followed Yahweh's laws and kept faith, and that this should be enough. But we don't act just to receive God's approval. We develop our own will, our rational conscience, to act and do the right thing. This is exercising our free will. Perhaps this was God's message. Although he treated Job with petulance and viciousness, why does God need to treat the test man with so much violence? Indeed, human violence is more than met by God's violence. Semi-divine Abram could challenge God and talk to him, as could Moses. Job seems to think that he can do the same. He questions God on the reasons for his suffering. He demands his day in court. Why does God establish rules which he will not follow? This is Job's puzzle. Yet God's justice is above all laws. God is not on an equivalent standing with man and does not answer Job. Job, preferring to judge him on his faith, God's existence cannot be demonstrated in any other way. The lesson seems to be that ultimately it is faith which justifies man, not the laws. Faith must remain even when understanding fails and Job faithfully served God. In conclusion, I would like to look at the Pietà. This, as you know, is in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Christ is, is highly numinous, deeply religious figure. The um, Mary, his lap seems extraordinarily wide as she holds Jesus. If we look at the other image, Richard, this is Christ. His lips are, are open. He seems to be between life and death. You can see his pain and suffering that he endured. So we're really left with this as a symbol of eternal suffering, which is part of the human condition. Thank you. It's shining, isn't it? Really, he polished the marble remarkably well, but he does get this amazing... Uh, when you first see that, uh, as you know, in, in the Basilica uh, in St. Peter's, it's so huge, and this statue is in a little niche. We're completely overwhelmed 
by the scale of the church. But if you get up really close to it, you see, wow, it's uh, it's a moment of deep of deep meaning and feeling as you look at Christ's image there. Created by a man, a remarkable man, Michelangelo, but So questions, comments for Dryden, or more broadly. There's a, there's a lot to unpack, right? There's a lot to this. And um, I, I just want to follow up going back to some of the questions that were asked earlier. Uh, some of these can be pretty quickly answered, but just to give you a little bit of context. Um, when was Job first written? We think the current form of Job was probably put to paper around the period of the Babylonian exile um, when much of the Torah was also put to paper in its present form. So some, sometime between the 5th and 6th centuries B.C. We have it in its present form. Yeah. Biblical scholars to, to today still argue how old Job is. There are signs in the book of Job that it is a very primitive text in places. Um, most scholars assume that the poetry is the oldest part and that the stories were probably added later. And many scholars believe that the ending of Job, which actually many interpreters find very dissatisfying because it seems to resolve the riddle too quickly, was probably added at a later date by different authors. Okay? The language it was originally written in would have been Hebrew. Uh, what's interesting to note is that, as I've mentioned before, beginning in the second and first centuries BC, much of the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek in a translation called the Septuagint. The tradition is they were translated by 70 rabbis, 70 teachers. Um, but what's interesting, in, in some forms of the Septuagint, there is an, an addendum to the very end of the book of Job, which puts Job in a lineage with the priests of ancient Israel. Because in its original form, Job is a foreigner. He comes from the land of Uz. He's not an Israelite. But someone who was helping with the Septuagint decided to tack on another tradition which said he was part of the priestly class. And you see references elsewhere to Job in the Old Testament that include him with some of the patriarchs. In fact, he's mentioned in some places um, in um, line with Noah, um, um, who was a legendary figure, and that was understood in the early period. And so actually the Jewish tradition goes back and forth whether Job was a historical figure or kind of an archetypal figure, to use a Jungian term. Some, some, some of these characters, possibly Job, uh, seem to justify King David's autocratic power. Yes. He could claim divine origin for his being above the law. Laws didn't apply to King David. And to say that the origin of the divine right of kings, Stuart's had him. Stuarts had in great quantity. They believed they had divine right, and that goes right back to King David, and God struggles with Job and others. Yep. Um, and then 
puzzlement between the relationship between God and Satan. Um, this is another flag for some interpreters that actually this is a very primitive story, primitive as an early in the tradition, because we don't have what later becomes common in the New Testament, which is the interpretation of Satan as sort of the leader of forces arrayed over and against God and the image of Satan falling from heaven, which is actually put in Jesus' voice in the Gospels. And, of course, the images out of the book of Revelation, which uh, inspired Milton and others writing much later. This image is that Satan is, is simply part of the heavenly court and has a role to play like a prosecutor would in a court system. So there's a way in which Satan is just doing his job by asking the hard questions. And if we look at this through the lens of, of um, sociology, this is happening in an honor and shame society. So there's a way in which it's Satan's job to challenge God's honor and to also challenge Job's honor, which is why Satan sort of argues the way he does. Well, skin for skin, you know, you rub Job's back, he rubs yours back. But if you take it all away from him, watch what happens, which impugns Job's honor, but also puts God on the spot. Yahweh now has to defend his own honor in trusting Job. And so there's no way out except to allow Satan to perform the test. But Richard, is it somehow separating good and evil, or putting good and evil, what Manichaeans said, in one entity, God has good and evil, or is Satan the opposing God to evil? In this, in this context, I would say this is not the Satan that we see in Genesis. If we, can, if we can separate Job from Genesis for a minute, this Satan just has a role to play in the heavenly court. In Genesis, Satan is depicted much more as opposed to God and more along the sort of Manichaeist or dualist lines. Um, and it, it's hard to separate out the influences of early Judaism from the later influences of the Greek tradition, which was much more about that dualism between good and evil. And if you look at, the, if you look at a lot of other Hebrew texts, including the Psalms, you see God is heavily involved with evil as well as good. And so that distinction probably... I think is arguably later, and, and maybe, maybe from our Greek inheritance more than our Hebrew inheritance. But uh, something Dryden touched on is that the, the, the debate between Job and God ultimately is a debate about honor. And there is a profound sense in which Job shames God and in the order of scripture, in the ancient Hebrew order, the Tanakh, this is the last time God speaks to a human being directly. Everything after this in the Tanakh is mediated through the prophets or someone else. So one interpretation, which is very early and has roots in Judaism, is that Job actually shames God into silence. God doesn't have an adequate answer for Job's suffering for the suffering of the righteous. So his long, his long three, four page, uh, God's rant, as it were, yeah. doesn't come up with justification for no, how he treated Job. 
doesn't. And this is part of a larger body of material in the Hebrew scriptures called the wisdom literature. Um, and a good contrast for Job is the book of Proverbs, with which you probably are all familiar, at least, at least acquainted with, right? Proverbs is much cleaner than this, right? Proverbs is, you behave well, God will reward you, right? So that's another strand of our Jewish inheritance. So if we understand, this is, this is where we, we really need to take a step back. And sometimes when we talk about the Bible, we talk about it as a single volume. But it, in fact, is a variety of voices speaking to us from very early, very early, with different understandings, even of who God is and how God acts. So while Proverbs has very clear answers to life's difficult questions, behave well and you will be rewarded, Job approaches this very differently and says, well, maybe not. What happens when the righteous suffer? Right? And then, as Dryden touched on in his talk, Christians would later go back and see Job as a template, if you like, or an example of the suffering righteous servant that, of course, we attribute to Jesus. And what Jung was doing was very much taking that to its full Christological conclusion, which is that there's a way in which God is shamed into silence and then enters into our suffering to resolve this question, which is a very Christian interpretation of what's going on. Jung also takes Job as a model for his psyche, his concept of a a conscience, an unconscious, a collective unconscious. Right where visions can appear in the unconscious. He had many patients who had visions. And so he believes, say, the visions of John are probably quite real. Mm-hmm. But it's the psychic interpretation, rather than the immediate facts, that underline a lot of uh, events that we've been reading about. But that just fit in with his theory of the psyche. So in that sense, Jung understands Job very much as an archetypal figure. He's an archetypal figure. Right. And there's justification for that in the tradition, and there is also the countervailing narrative, which is that Job was a real person. Yeah. And yeah. both of these interpretations are left in tension with each other, both in broader Judaism and in broader Christianity. Right. Elihu, we think, was a later addition to now, the Now, why text. has he so much rage Elihu? against, against uh, Job? <laughs> He's fuming with rage. He's fuming with rage, not just against Job, but Job's friends. And maybe, maybe one of the reasons he's at it is because he, he's as upset as we are with the inadequacy of the explanations that have been put forward. Yeah. Um, the other thing Elihu does is he's a nice bridge between the dialogue with the friends and God speaking. Elihu sort of opens the door for Yahweh to speak. But he doesn't he lie about uh, Job? He says Job has committed crimes against orphans. And, uh, I would have to go back and look. I, I, I read it last <laughs> night to my horror, but it, uh, there's no evidence that Job did no. behave badly. No. But he seems to put that in to, um, to provide uh, ammunition for his argument. Kind of a justification. Mm. Yeah. All right. Yes. Hang on just a minute, So how how can we modernize this story and apply it 
to contemporary times. It seems like God is the, the doing good part and Satan could maybe possibly be the collective unconscious that we're surrounded by to act in a way that is godly or goodly in a fairly unconscious world in modern times. Mm. Well, we're living. We, we live with our unconscious, which is maybe 90% of our being, our psyche, it's our unconscious. And we don't, don't know what is hidden in our unconscious. So what devils are there and what goodness is there, we just don't know. Um, so I don't know how we can respond to... Uh, I don't think mankind has changed that much since Job's day. And what is devilishly uh, depressing about it all is that we repeat so many of the, the uh, beliefs and revelations, the thoughts, that we could destroy ourselves. And it's all around us, the potential for human destruction. And the, it's talked about throughout the Old Testament and in uh, Revelations. I don't see what suffering is part of what makes us human. And we can't change that. But are, are you asking, can we do anything to change our nature? No, more that, you know, how, how can we bring this lesson into our daily lives um, as practicing Christians and... Um, well, the, the thought that came of, up was... The lesson, of in, the lesson of injustice, perhaps, is the way to look at it. It's a lesson it. of injustice. But the thought that comes up for me is, you know, no good deed comes, it goes unpunished. Yes. So another, another response to that is, you know, to, um, to go back to sort of our paradigm here. We can look at other scripture... And, you know, particularly I think of the Psalms, which are considered part of the wisdom literature, that they were early hymns. And in the Psalms, you see a lot of echoes of Job's arguments in the Psalms. God, why is this happening to me? Why are you allowing my so-called friend to have victory over me? Why are you allowing wicked things to happen and go on and unfold? And why do the wicked prosper? Um, And that prayer is one way maybe we can think about Job and our contemporary witness. The struggle of the righteous to understand their own suffering is a holy struggle. That's Job's struggle. And in fact, we see that also in Scripture when Jesus is dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a way that Jesus enters this struggle as well. And so the tradition tells us that we can enter that struggle too. So then we look to Job as an example of what it means to suffer in holiness. And Dryden touched on this too, that the response to suffering is a life of faith. Yeah. Um, But also when you get to reason and 18th century rationalists, they really... uh, set up a system whereby we behave the way we do and our founding fathers took it on board uh, that we behave in a righteous way we, we look after people who are sick and ill and we are, we are just and we do not lie but we can see how easily that can be destroyed by, by people in power who decide to lie and be unjust so we have to really be alert to everything that's going on around us and call it out when you see bad things happening. 
Ron. It just struck me, and maybe you both can comment on it, that Christianity does, though, turn a lot of this on its head in the sense that, um, first of all, as was referenced this morning, right, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Um, that's Christ's response to exactly what Satan did to uh, Yahweh in the book of Job. Um, the second thing is that, I mean, Paul talks about how through Christ, wisdom is confounded. And insofar as this is wisdom literature, and this is the words to the wise, Christ takes a leap far beyond that. So maybe somewhere in there is some of the Christian response to, or how do we live after Job? Maybe you could, since you talked more extensively about some of that this morning, you could comment on um, sure, I'll, I'll take a quick stab at it. I, I just want to affirm all of that. That is, that is, in fact, an interpretation of a lot of the Christian tradition. Um, more contemporary theologians talk about process theology and this notion in which God is in the process of working out our salvation. But more than that, we are in the process of discovering who God is. And you can, you can go back and you can mine scripture with that kind of lens in mind. So there's a sense in which if you move through scripture linearly, you know, through the, through the library that the Bible is, we begin in a garden and there's the fall and then there's the struggle, Israel, to struggle with God. And then there, is, there are the prophets who come to speak to us and point. And the old Christian interpretation then is Christ comes and fulfills all that. And we end not up in the garden again, but with the heavenly city as depicted in Revelation. And throughout that, we are wrestling with who is God and who are we. Um, another one of my favorite interpreters is, is sort of the, the anthropology of René Girard who argues that a lot of the violence that we see depicted that Yahweh is committing in the Old Testament is attributive. In other words, we have attributed that to God um, because we ourselves are violent. And we only understand that um, when, in fact, Gerard argues that Christ's witness is over and against that in a profound sense. And you can read a lot of the frictions that Jesus even has with John the Baptist early on. Remember John the Baptist says, God is going to come with the fire and vengeance, winnowing fork, you know, all of those wonderful things that sound like fire and brimstone right out of the prophets of uh, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And when Jesus comes along and he starts teaching a gospel of love, and a gospel of mercy, John sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the one we're supposed to expect? Almost as if to say, hmm, we're not quite sure you're the Messiah we're looking for, right? And in fact, that's one of the tensions that's deliberately set up. And we still wrestle with that in the Christian system. And we embody that by all of the ways that we've wrestled with violence and warfare and aspirations to power throughout our history. And uh, Gerard argues that the witness of Jesus kind of has put a splinter into the collective consciousness, a question mark over the way we do things as a matter of course, and that that is the beginning of the salvation 
that Jesus offers, the healing. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? It's a fundamental change in direction, certainly. I try to highlight that. You suddenly get love becoming the issue rather than fear. Mm-hmm. But because of our condition, we bring fear back into the equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and even ancient Judaism, um, the, the rabbinical tradition, there, there's an argument always going on about is God violent or not? So, you know, it's, it's not as easy as you might hear from some strands of our tradition just to simply say, well, it says so in the Bible, so therefore it must be true or right. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest and just wear my heart on my sleeve. I got off the bandwagon with fundamentalism pretty quickly. That was my rebellion, by the way, as an undergraduate. But I got off the bandwagon when I realized that there was a hermeneutic or a lens being brought to bear on Scripture that nobody was talking about. There was a particular interpretation that was being used. But no, it's the Word of God, which is, is a kind of way of saying, well, my interpretation is the Word of God, right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, at some point, we'll either in this series or perhaps some future series look deeply into the subject of reason and logic and science in our theology. And my point being is that why do we continue to refer to who God is, uh, applying human attributes to God somehow, uh, as opposed to the scarier reference to what God is? I'll always trust you, Bill, to ask the big questions. (laughs) So, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so does everyone else. And I don't mean that in a blind sense, but that is, that is a question that theologians across the world have to ponder. So. All right, not to worry. Um, because all I, all I want to add to that, um, because you know, we're going to be touching on that over and over and over again, is to remember historically that the notion that we can logically perceive God and be in relationship with God and unpack who God is is a concept that comes right out of um, the basis for the development of university systems and the basis for much of the theology that led to the natural law that Richard Hooker points to. Yeah, that, that whole notion. And it's very ancient and it's very Greek in its perspective. And so it's very much part of the project, for lack of a better term, at the present time. Questions? Comments? Jerry? Just very briefly, um, uh, Bill, I wanted to just uh, reference, you know, what you were just saying. In fact, I think the day I saw you for coffee down there at the, what do you call it, I think you raised this question, actually, (laughs) about God and, uh, but anyway. The only thing I was going to say was this, uh, that the human mind always images. And when you get into anything, whether it's religion or whatever, we always image everything. So this particular story is filled with images. So God is imaged. And he was imaged in the time, uh, the, the idea of God in those days. You know, Yahweh was... Uh, was a very, uh, very human, you know, because he would get upset and he'd carry on and so on. He'd, 
you know, uh, punish people, uh, fire-breathing at times, loving at other times. So reflecting of what a human being does. I mean, that's how we live, right? We're up and down, we do this and that and so forth. I mean, that's not really... That's an image of God that hardly explains God in any way. And so always keep in mind that all of these things are images that we use in order to comprehend, or I should say try to comprehend, these mysteries of life. The answer to Job is that God, uh, the answer is that he took on our suffering. He, uh, he became incarnate. He didn't really say anything. He did it. He just did it. He took a human... He took on the human condition himself, which is the answer. What answer? It doesn't answer anything except the fact that he throws his lot in with us, and that tells us that things will probably be all right, because that's the way he's sort of teaching us, without explaining anything. Who can explain anything in life? Who can explain the mysteries of the universe? Nobody. It's way above our pay grade, you know. And so all of the theological stuff is always helpful, but you have to remember, it's still, uh, you know, the workings of the human mind trying to probe things way beyond us. And it's interesting that in the end of the story, Job is overwhelmed. He is overwhelmed by God, but... Forget about the personages in the story. He's overwhelmed by the fact that there's no way he'd ever understand life. And yet, at the end, he's restored. He's restored because he, he had this illumination. The illumination is that you have to embrace it and not argue with it. And to just capstone that and also wrap up our talk today... Um, if you notice at the, in the conclusion of Job, one of the things that, that I think from a Christian perspective is more satisfactory about the ending is that because of Job's experience with both his suffering and his struggle with God over that, Job is given the authority then to perform sacrifice on behalf of his friends. See? And that's a very Christian notion. Sound familiar? is very much closely parallels the notion of Jesus as our great high priest performs sacrifice on our behalf. In fact, is the sacrifice, offers himself for sacrifice. Put another way, one reading of Job and, of course, the reading of the Christological, the Christian understanding of this text, is that it gets to the very heart of the question of whether or not there's meaning in our suffering. Does our suffering have meaning? There are strands in our deep tradition which say, maybe, maybe not. But the Christian answer to that is, yes. And the reason for that is, as Jerry said, the incarnation. God has entered into our suffering. Therefore, for that simple reason, our suffering has meaning and purpose. We may not understand it, we may not know where it's headed or why, but our suffering has meaning.
thank you all very much for your time today. Thanks for listening to this podcast of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, your host. We are a ministry of the Episcopal Church of Our Savior in Mill Valley, California. Find our podcast feed over at iTunes or in your favorite podcasting service. Give us a rating. Or go to our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org for more information about our spirituality, ministries, and service in the wider community. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.